speaker this morning. Um, I love her. Uh, Michelle, who's campus speaking this morning? Uh, Michelle. Wow. Uh, Michelle is amazing. We served on youth for quite a number of years, just as co-leaders. And then when Troy and Sarah left, uh, Michelle and, uh, was, and I and Andrew and Becca kind of stepped up with Jamie to take the team over. And so I actually got to help run a ministry with her. And I am so sorry about that. Uh, and I've just, I really developed um, just a heart for the Who's Camps and who they are. They love young people. Um, uh, Andrew uh, served with YFC, and I know Michelle probably helped out a lot and cooked meals and all the stuff that happens when the kids invade their house. But um, she has a heart not only for that, but for Jesus. Um, she is currently a, a Fuller student, so that makes her automatically smarter than me. And, uh, I, and I, you, she reminds me of that all the time. So, no, I do. I'd say, I'd say, I tell her how smarter she is than me. But um, I just, man, you want to take notes this morning. She, she's really heard from God and, and um, is excited to say her. So would you invite my good friend Michelle Peace Camp up? today. How are you doing? Good. All right. Well, um, Kurt has been trying to get me to preach for almost three years now and finally succeeded, finally wore me down. And I said yes. Mostly, actually, I finally, uh, God finally said yes. And so then I was obedient and said yes as well. Um, and so we're just going to start because Kurt talks for a long time before he actually starts the message, and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, so, I, like I said, I did not want to preach, and I felt like God told me that I was supposed to. So I said, okay, and then I was praying, like, God, why do you want me to preach, and what do I have to bring that is going to be any different or better than what someone else might have? And... Last Saturday, finally sat down and really felt like God gave me the beginnings of a message. Took a lot of notes, wrote it down, came to church last Sunday and listened to Kurt's message and was like, oh, okay, God, I guess you were right. It seems like I am the one who's supposed to preach because all these things that I wrote down actually seem to follow up with what Kurt was talking about last week really, really well. So that was exciting. I feel like God is actually speaking, um, which is good because you don't want to hear me speak you want to hear God speak, right? I want to hear God speak. I don't want to hear me speak. Um, so Kurt's been talking about our actions and our reactions and how our reactions are actually so important in our witness of who God is in our lives. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And Kurt's also been talking about, last week he talked about framing, like the frame through which we look at the world and how that has a big influence on our actions and reactions. And we're going to look at that a little bit today as well. The, the question journey that we're going to be going on is, um, God promises in his word that all things work together for the good of those who love him. And I know I love God some days better than other days. And I know that most, if not all of you, also love God. And there are many thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the world who also love God. But sometimes it seems next to impossible to see 
how what's happening in our individual lives or in the world at large can be good, right? How can it be God working all of these things together for good? And how can we hold on to that promise that God is good and is doing good things in the midst of things spinning out of control or chaos or tragedy or just a stressful day, right? Um, So that's what we're going to be exploring today. And I feel like God has given me something that, like many things that God does, is really, really simple and incredibly hard to do, to hold on to that promise. So that's where we're going. Um, Andrew's going to pray for us. My husband, Andrew, who's awesome, he's going to pray for me and for the sermon, and then we'll get started. God, I just thank you so much that we are free to gather here to worship you. Lord, that we are free to sing praises to you and to pray and to just be here and listen uh, to you speak through one of us. And God, I just pray for Michelle that you give her peace, Lord, that you will be speaking to her and giving her that sense of authority that brings words from anywhere. And I just want to lift up um, ministries and national parks, Lord, that as people are camping and exploring your beauty and your creation, that they're also becoming to know more of who you are. All right. So, um, a little bit about my life right now. Um, First, I have a beautiful one-and-a-half-year-old, Malachi. This is Malachi. He's my favorite, except for when he's not my favorite. You know, that happens sometimes. Um, And he has recently discovered that not getting his way makes him very angry. Um, And that something he can do when he's angry is hit which is not really awesome, so we're working on that. Um, And he's busy and into everything and always, always moving, so that's Malachi. Um, In addition to having a a one-and-a-half-year-old, we are in the process of moving. We are going to be moving on Saturday. So our um, apartment is half-packed, half-unpacked in an effort to keep the living room, and Malachi's room is like normal as possible. We have all of our boxes that we've already packed stacked floor to ceiling in our bedroom. So we have a teeny little path to get to our bed and then boxes. Um, On top of that, my in-laws who are awesome are here. And so we have currently five people living in 800 square feet, which can get like one person leaves a shirt out and it's like, oh my gosh, there's this terrible mess because there's no space. (laughs) And um, on top of that, I, in case you couldn't tell, am pregnant um, with twins, which is crazy. So for those of you that have been pregnant, you know that it is really hard. And being pregnant with twins is even harder, okay? So, um, for example, one, you're just tired all the time, and you're way bigger. I'm already as big as I was with Malachi, and I'm only halfway there, so that's cool. Um, But I am supposed to eat 180 grams of protein every day, 
Okay, that's like over three times as much as a normal person is supposed to eat in a day. And so I basically all I do is eat all day. And you know how um, you feel on Thanksgiving after you ate too much at Thanksgiving dinner and you just feel kind of gross and like heavy and bloated and just like I don't want to do anything because I feel gross. That's basically how I feel 24-7 because all I do is eat. And if I don't feel that way, it means I actually haven't eaten enough yet that day. Um, so the only time I feel like slightly hungry is during the 15 minutes in the morning after I wake up before I start eating for the day. <laughs> and then, then I just feel full until I go to bed that night. It's awesome. Um, and so it's hard. Um, one of the babies is not growing very well, so I have a ridiculous amount of doctor's appointments. Um, an hour and a half long ultrasound every week, which takes a lot of time, and I have to find someone to watch Malachi, and I have to carve time out of my schedule, and packing, and resting, and eating, and all of this stuff to go to the doctor, and it's expensive, and we are moving, which is expensive, and once the twins come, I don't know how I'm going to be able to go back to work, so then it's going to be just on Andrew to provide for our family. So what does that mean for finances? And am I even going to be able to go back to work in the fall before the twins come, or am I going to be put on bed rest by that point? There is a lot. There is a lot going on. And I would have every right to be stressed and anxious and worried and cranky and like really focused on myself, right? Like, I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and I have to fix this on my own, and I have to take care of this, and I have so much going on that I just need to focus on me and my family right now. And just make sure that I have everything under control and figured out and set so that we're gonna be okay. Right? Okay. But, you guys, like, look at my beautiful baby that I already have. God has given me this huge blessing, and he is sweet, and he is loving. This morning, he woke up, and Andrew brought him into bed with us, and he just sat next to me and rubbed my back while I kept sleeping. Okay, like, what a joy. And God has blessed us with the opportunity to buy a house in this economy, in this craziness, we are moving from our tiny little 800-square-foot apartment to a house that's ours with a yard that already has a fence built so Malachi can play in it, and it has a garage so Malachi no longer will have to share his bedroom with all of Andrew's tools and our Christmas decorations and our guest bed. And we're having twins. Like, that's incredible. That's a miracle. There's so, so many women who can't even have one baby who struggle to get pregnant at all, and God has blessed us with twins. And yes, it's going to be hard in ways we cannot even imagine, and ways we don't even know, but it's also going to be fun and incredible in ways that we can't even imagine, right? So the point of those two versions of my story right now is that how we look at a situation has a real impact on the situation. 
right? The first version of my life leaves me and probably you feeling a little bit anxious, a little bit stressed, a little bit worried, a little bit like, oh my goodness, are they going to make it? All these things they have to take care of. And it's very me-focused, right? That first version of my life is all about me. And the second version is all about God and everything God is doing, right? It leaves me and hopefully you feeling in awe of the goodness of God, recognizing the blessings that God is giving me and my family. That second version leaves me feeling peace rather than stress, which ultimately is better for my babies and for the moving process and for living with five people in a tiny space, right? When you're stressed out in that situation, it makes it worse. <laughs> and when you're at peace in that situation, it brings joy, right? There's still a lot, but I know that it's in God's hands and not mine, and that brings peace. So... <clears throat> We're going to talk about how we can continue to find that peace in lots of situations. Um, um, for me, looking at a situation and seeing the good things is not very hard. I'm a very optimistic, glass half full type of person. So I can look at really hard situations and be like, well, but God is doing this little thing and that gives me hope. And I know for some people, that is not the case. For some people, it's really hard to look at a situation and see the good, right? Pessimists, glass half empty type of people. Um, but there is so much peace and freedom and joy that comes from being able to see the good. And so how can we all learn to do that and be better at that and allow God to speak that into our lives? Um, there, we're going to look at Psalm 116 today. And um, the psalmist, um, we don't know who wrote this psalm. Many psalms, like, say, you know, of David or of so-and-so. This one doesn't. So whoever this person was also knew a little bit about um, feeling overwhelmed and stressed, right? Um, in verse 3, he or she says, The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. All right, anyone ever felt overcome by trouble and sorrow? <laughs> anyone relate? Feel like, okay, maybe not actual death, but like an emotional death or an actual death, like something is wrong. This is not okay. So the psalmist doesn't stop there. He goes on. And says, then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, save me. Okay, he's confident that God is going to answer, that God is going to save him. He's in this hard place, whatever that may be. We've all been in hard places. It might be something little, right, in the grand scheme of things, like, I woke up late and I'm running late and it's stressful. Or maybe something really big, right? 
There are lots of really big things in the world happening right now. You can just think of the news and take your pick. Um, but then he called on the Lord and said, oh, Lord, save me. So now we're going to go back actually to the beginning of the psalm, the first two verses, which is what gives the psalmist confidence to call on the Lord. Um, he starts off the psalm saying, I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. So this is the first thing that for me helps me remember to look for the good in situations and to know that God is in control um, is to remember that God is always listening and hearing me. And it's not um, a passive listening, sort of like when you have the radio going in the background while you're making dinner or like listening to music while you're working out and you're kind of hearing it, but it's not like you're engaged in it, right? That's not the listening that God does. God is an active listener. He listens and he responds, okay? And he listens and he responds in the big things and in the little things. And at least for me, knowing that God is listening and responding and on the journey with me in the little things in so many ways is more important than knowing that God is with me in the big things because it's the little everyday-to-day -day interactions with God that build my faith to even be bold enough to take the big things to him, right? Okay, so I have a story, and it's a story of just, like, those little, like, dumb, everyday things that God wants us to take to him. So for me, um, parking, like having to find street parking in downtown Seattle, for example, stresses me out. I do not like to do that. It's one of those, like, right, it's dumb, it's just a little thing. If it takes you 20 minutes to find parking, in the grand scheme of things, is that really a big deal? <laughs> I agree, but no, like, whatever, it's 20 minutes. Okay, you find parking. Um, but, and for years now, so I went to college in Seattle, so I used to have to park, find street parking in Seattle a lot more often than I do now. Praise the Lord. Um, but, so this has been a, like, decade of this journey with God, of parking. And I don't even know how it started, but at some point early on in college, whenever I was going to have to go and find a place to park where I knew it was going to be hard, I would just pray and ask God, like, God, can you just give me a parking spot and make this not a thing? Can it just be easy? And more often than not, God did and still does. I can't tell you how many times I've pulled up to the restaurant I'm supposed to be meeting friends at or whatever it may be, and there's just a spot right there, right in front of the door, just for me, no one else, just waiting. And this, of course, it doesn't happen every time. But I think it happens a lot more often than it should right? A lot more often than just would be like, well, sometimes you get lucky and find a sweet parking spot, right? It happens a lot for me. And that journey of knowing that God is listening and knowing that 
God is going to give me a parking spot. And if for whatever reason there is no beautiful, easy parking spot that time, God is still with me as I'm circling the blocks, searching for one. Takes the stress out of the situation and means that when I finally do find a parking spot and arrive at wherever I'm going, I'm still happy and not cranky, right? It changes the situation, and God was with me in it, right? So that's a little thing. We all have our little things that we can take to God, like every day, whatever it may be. Sometimes the little things for us for a couple weeks was like, okay, God, just like let Malachi fall asleep tonight without crazy ridiculousness, right? It's little things, but then sometimes it's big things, like, okay, God, we're having twins. Um, what do we do with that? Where are we going to put them? We don't, have, we don't have room for twins, actually. Oh, like you have something for us. You gave us twins, and now you've given us this house, and you'll work everything else out that we still have to work out, right? He's in it. So God is listening and responding, which is even, like, more important than just the fact that he's listening, right? He's with us. And the little things are what build our faith to take the big things to him and trust him with the big situations in our lives. That we all have big things and we all have little things, and they're different for everyone, but God knows what they are. So then... Sorry, just a second. <clears throat> this leads us to the next truth that I love from Psalm 116, um, which for me the key of this verse, and it's one of the verses that has been very meaningful in my life for also many, many years, is actually verse 7. Um, Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you right? God is good, and that's what we're talking about today, is how can we see this good that God is and is doing, even when it seems like there is no good? Or maybe there's some good, but there's really a lot more bad, right? Um, and the psalmist is able to say this because he knows that, like it says in verses 5 and 6, God is gracious and compassionate and when I was in great need, and I would also argue when I was in, like, kind of minor need, right, God saved me. And so because of that knowledge of God's goodness and the knowledge of God's saving and the knowledge that God is responding and with us and listening actively, we can have peace and be at rest and trust in God's goodness, Okay, so that's cool, but how do you actually do that when things are really, really, really bad? So one of my favorite um, biographies, women, um, her life has spoken to mine a lot. Um, and I think she and her sister um, epitomize this peace and resting in God's goodness and trusting in God's goodness um, more than anyone else I can think of at the moment at least, and as I was writing this, is um, Corey Ten Boom. So many of you probably know who she is, and many of you probably have no idea who she is. Um, she lived in Holland during World War II, 
and she, um, she was unmarried, and um, her sister Betsy was also unmarried, and they lived with their father in the family home. She also had two other siblings who were married and had families of their own. So there were the four children and then their father. And Corey and her sister Betsy and her father, who at the time of the war was in his 80s, they built a, well, they didn't build it. They, they allowed and had friends come and build a secret room, like behind a hidden door in their house where they hid Jews and then would smuggle them like to the countryside for permanent homes. Um, she, it's, it's thought that about 800 Jews went through their house and hid in that secret room at some point during the war. Um, and so, like, she and her family were responsible for saving the lives of 800 Jews um, during the war. And about a year before the war was over, a little over a year before the war was over, um, a fellow Dutchman informed on them and turned them in to the Gestapo, to the Nazis. And their entire family, she, her sister, her married sister and married brother, her father, um, one of her nephews who happened to be at the house when the police came, um, they were all arrested and taken to, initially just to like the local jail that the German army had taken over. Um, so they're arrested and taken to jail. In jail, right during that first week, 10 days after they were arrested, um, her father, who was 84 at the time, died from the conditions. So that's the first. Her father died. Um, her married brother and sister, who didn't live at the house, ended up being released just a couple days later um, because it was like, oh, you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Although they actually were a part of the work, but they, by the grace of God, were released. Um, ultimately, she and her sister Betsy ended up in the Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany, um, and they were there. So they are <coughs> stuck in this concentration camp. There's no food. The gas chambers, right, are a constant threat. They're crammed into a barracks that was built for, I think, about 100 people and now has close to 1,000 people in it because the Germans were emptying all of the work camps and concentration camps that were in the occupied countries and bringing all of their prisoners back to Germany as the um, Allied army was, you know, gaining ground. So ridiculously overcrowded. It's winter, so they are literally freezing to death slowly, right? If there is any cause, any place where you should be like allowed to despair, right? This is it. There's clearly nothing good happening. Evil is winning. Except. Um, Corey, in her autobiography, which is called The Hiding Place, talks about the difference between her reactions and her sister Betsy's reactions. Um, when they first get sent initially to a labor camp just in Holland, um, where the conditions were, I mean, slightly better, but comparatively a lot better than at the concentration camp, um, Corey at one point is complaining a little bit to her sister, like, how long are we going to be here? How long is this going to last? 
And Betsy's response is, how long will it take? Okay, so she is not saying, like, how long will it take for us to be freed, like, for the allies to come and free us. She's saying, or in her response right here, if people can be taught to hate, talking about the guards, they can be taught to love. We must find the way, you and I, no matter how long it takes. Okay, so they're in this work camp. Conditions are brutal. And Betsy's first reaction is this is a place of ministry, and we need to be ministering to our oppressors. Okay, so that's not the reaction I think I would have. I like to, th I like to think I would have that reaction. But let's just be honest. Okay, so shortly after they arrive at the labor camp, Corey is talking with another woman who, you know, has also been betrayed. And through this, their conversation, they learn that the same person betrayed both of them. And she learns the actual name of her betrayer, the man who turned them in and the reason they end up in the labor camp and then ultimately the concentration camp. And she is overcome with rage and anger and hatred towards this man, okay? And Corey writes, and she told Betsy, her sister, so they, they know. Corey writes, what puzzled me all this time was Betsy. She had suffered everything I had, and yet she seemed to carry no burden of rage. Corey asks Betsy, like, aren't you angry? Doesn't it bother you that, like, one of our fellow countrymen turned us in? And Betsy's response again, oh yes, Corey, I'm terribly bothered. I've felt for him ever since I knew. And pray for him whenever his name comes to mind. How dreadfully he must be suffering. Excuse me? <laughs> He's not suffering. He's like happy still. The Germans are still, you know, in control. He's got food. He's free. He's got some power because he's an informant. They are suffering, right? Okay. Two more stories. Um, when they first get sent then to Ravensbrück, the concentration camp in Germany, they get there and they're like, Corey is just overwhelmed. The conditions are unbearable. They've been there for, you know, like 15 minutes in the barracks. And Corey says, what are we going to do? And Betsy says, well, God's told us what to do. He says, give thanks for everything. And Corey's like, okay. <laughs> okay. And Betsy's like, no, we have so many things to be thankful for. And Betsy's, you know, we can be thankful we're still together, that they haven't separated us. And Corey says, okay, I can, I can buy that. I, yes, thank you, God, that we are still together. And Betsy says, we can be thankful for the ridiculous overcrowding of this barracks because it means that we can share God's love with more people more easily. And Corey says, okay, I can go with that. Thankful for that. Um, Betsy says, we can be thankful that somehow they didn't um, find the Bible that we smuggled in with us. And Corey says, yes, okay, I can be thankful for that. Thank you, God, for that you've let us keep this copy of your word. <clears throat> and then Betsy says, and thank you, God, for the fleas that are infesting our beds. And Corey says, um, no. No, 
That is too far. That is just too far. There is no good that can come from these fleas. Like, I can't thank God for fleas. And she just, nope, I'm done. Well, it turns out that once again, Betsy was an incredible woman and was right. Um, a couple months later, um, this whole time then, every evening they hold prayer meetings in the dormitory of the barracks. Um, and they've never once been bothered by the guards. And they can't figure out why, but they're happy for this one little area of respite from the brutality of the Nazi guards. And Betsy, a couple months into their stay at the concentration camp, overhears two of the guards talking um, because a, a woman has, I think it was, a woman had died in the barracks and they were like, someone needs to go in and take her body out. And the guards refused to come in and get her body because of the fleas. So these fleas that Betsy had thanked God for, and Corey was like, you are, you are a saint, my sister, but you are crazy, um, were the reason that they were able to have this one small area of peace and the reason that they were able to read aloud from their Bible with groups of women every night and have worship services in the dormitories in the middle of this concentration camp. Okay, so my last story about these two women. <clears throat> um, it's at the concentration camp. They're all outside standing for roll call. And um, a woman from the cold collapses. And one of the guards come over and starts beating her. And Corey turns to her sister and says, oh, that poor woman. Now, who's Corey talking about? The woman being beaten, right? That's our natural response, this poor woman who's suffering. And Betsy replies to Corey, yes, may God forgive her. Okay, so by this point, I'm reading through this autobiography. For the first time, I think I read it when I was like 12. Um, and I read it again just this last week in preparation for this message. And I'm like, okay, like the only other person, I'm sure there are other stories of people that are this incredible, but the only one I can think of is Jesus <laughs> on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Right? How do you have the peace in your heart and such an incredible trust in God's goodness and knowing God's love so much that you are able to physically remember and respond in such a way that God loves your oppressor too? How do you do that? Betsy and ultimately Corey. Corey writes throughout her, um, her autobiography of how much she learned from Betsy. And then the influence in, because Corey survived. Betsy eventually, actually, um, just two weeks before Corey was released, Betsy died in the concentration camp. So it's not like she was physically doing well. It killed her, this, this journey God had her on. Um, but the influence that she had on Corey and Corey's later ministry um, was huge. <clears throat> so how were they able to have this peace in the middle of horror Right? How could they hold on to their humanity in the middle of these inhuman conditions, in the midst of hatred and brutality? How could Betsy still love even her guards? Right? 
And it ultimately did change the situation. There's, um, there was a guard that everyone called the snake because she was so brutal. And as Betsy then lay dying, like about two days before she died, um, she couldn't physically get out of bed to go to roll call because she was so ill at that point. And um, they couldn't get her to the you know hospital barracks. And this guard, the snake, right, the most brutal guard there, at least in there, you know, the ones that they were interacting with, having seen Betsy's demeanor and her actions for months now at the camp, actually comes into the dormitory and helps carry her to the hospital. Okay, it didn't change this guard's behavior towards anyone else, but it changed the situation for Betsy, and at some small level had changed this guard's heart, right? So how did they do this? How could they hold on to that peace? How could they keep their souls at rest and remember God's goodness, right, in the midst of this terrible, awful, inhuman situation? And I would argue that it is because Betsy and ultimately Corey knew God's love at so deep a level that they allowed God's love to be the lens through which they looked at everything rather than letting their situation be the lens through which they viewed God. And that's hard to do, right? Um, they knew God's love, and they knew not only how much God loved them, but how much God loved all of the people around them, their fellow prisoners and the guards. And this is where I think what we're talking about today ties in so much with what Kurt was talking about particularly last week um, and our understanding of who God is. Right, because Kurt was talking about how, right, when we view God like the older brother did in the story of the prodigal son, or like the man who received one talent in the parable of the talents, right, when we view God as um, a taskmaster, stingy with his gifts, right, all about the rules and regulations, that's not who God really is. And when that's our understanding of God, we allow the situations that we're in, whatever they may be, to be the lens through which we view God and God's love and the goodness that he has for us. Whereas when we remember that God is full of love for us, that he wants nothing more than to shower us with blessings, that he is the loving father running to us before we can even see him, When we can remember that and hold on to that, we can allow God's love to be the lens, the frame, to use Kurt's language, that we look at our situations through. And then we can begin to see God at work 
and the good things that God is doing. And we can rest and let God take care of things instead of us trying to take care of things. So it's simple, but it's really hard because we have to trust in God's love. First of all, we have to even like believe that God loves us. And for some people, we're not even there yet, right? Does God even love me? I don't know. And then for others, it's learning to trust that God loves me and loves everyone, no matter the situation, right? And that's where I think it comes back to the small everyday things of parking spots and remembering that God is with us and loving us even in those small things that builds our faith to remember that God is loving us and with us in the big, terrible things. So, um, as we learn, as we trust God with the little things and start to see the good in the little things, that builds our faith and builds our trust in God's love, which then makes it easier the next time to see the good and remember that God loves us in the slightly bigger things, which builds our faith even more and our trust even more. And then we can see God's goodness yet again easier, right? Instead of being like a negative spiraling down cycle, it's like a positive spiraling up cycle of trust and faith and love growing and growing and growing as we can see God's goodness. So that's what I have for you. God is good. Sometimes it's really hard to see, but he's continually asking us to look for it and continually reminding us that he loves not only us, but everyone, um, all the people involved in our lives. So I'm going to pray. All right. God, thank you so much that you love us and that you are good, um, that you are working all things together for good, even when we can't see it. Help us, God, to come to see it more and more. Help us to trust your love. Help us to, to believe you when you say that you love us and you are good. Amen. <laughs>